Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we just, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord God, let those words resonate within us. Let those words come out of us. Let us truly recognize what it means that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord God, I just ask that you will bless this day, that you will bless my words, that they will be your words, that, that I will not get in your way, that my flesh will not get in your way, but that you will be glorified. And that everyone walking out of here today will remember that you are holy, holy, holy. I ask it in your son's holy name, in Jesus Christ's holy name, I pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you again. A lot of familiar faces, some new ones. Um, welcome. Welcome for those that aren't here normally. Welcome. Uh, we're glad you could join us. Um, just to kind of, uh, by way of introduction, just real quick, I just try to get it out of the way. Um, uh, my name is Brad Frakowski. I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Mercy Hill and and uh, I'm one of the few guys that gets the honor at, to stand before you and proclaim the Word of God. So um, we're going to dive right in today. Um, if you've uh, been attending regularly or if you've been listening to any of our podcasts, you would probably know that we're working our way through the book of Romans. Um, this week, we are in chapter 7. Um, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, we are going to be discussing chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, and we're actually going to dabble a little bit into 13, but primarily we'll be working through Romans 7, 7 through 12. So we'll go ahead and read that. My reverberant, is it like echoing? It, is it a little bit? Okay. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and I'll let you guys work the technolo technological part out. <laughs> All right, again, so Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray once more. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you... Allow us to draw near to you in this way that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, that you open our understanding to who you are. And Lord, I just ask that uh, as we work through this passage, that again, your name will be glorified and honored. And I ask it in your son's holy name, in Jesus Christ's holy name, I pray. Amen. All right, so as we've been going through the book of Romans, we can kind of review what Paul has been arguing for up to this point throughout the first so many chapters. And I would say if we had to summarize that, what Paul is arguing is that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. 
We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. By taking that position, Paul knows that there are going to be many questions that come to him. He anticipates these questions. He anticipates people to question that truth. Are we saved by grace through faith in Christ? So as he's making these arguments, he's answering those various questions. And last week, as uh, Eric was here preaching from, the ver- from chapter 7, we'll take a look. As that portion of text was coming to a close, we read, Likewise, my brothers, you, we, also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If we were once held captive by the law and our sinful passions were aroused by it, so much that our members, our physical bodies, our minds, were bearing fruit or producing works uh, for death, what does that mean about the law? What does that say about the law? Paul anticipates this question, and it leads into our text. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And his answer is, by no means. But there is a relationship between the law and sin. And so Paul, in this portion of text, will dive in and make us aware of what that relationship is. He tells us, if it had not been for the law, I, meaning Paul, would not have known sin. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the law diagnoses our sin. I'm going to try to keep up with the other guys with their word affiliation. I know that we had some, I think, three words that started with an F, three words that started with this. So we're going to go with D's today. The law diagnoses our sin. So like a medical screening at a doctor's office. I, I, I know that we, I, I don't know, some of us probably dread going to a doctor's office. I probably shouldn't say that for obvious reasons. But some people do. And when we go, sometimes they have to perform diagnostic tests to see what is wrong with us, to be able to identify what's going on, to diagnose the issue, and to help with it. For Paul, what was revealed was that he was covetous. He says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. For us, it may be the same, or it may be something different. But it seems evident that it is clear and it is important that we know our sin, that we diagnose our sin. So I think it would be wise to, to almost do somewhat of a diagnostic exam kind of look at these commandments and see if we can diagnose where we stand. The Ten Commandments will probably sound familiar to you. They should. As I work through them, just know that I'm drawing from the works of uh, James Montgomery Boyce. I want to give credit where credit is due. 
Um, there are some other individuals that I'll quote as we go throughout, but I, I do think it's important that we look at the Ten Commandments since that is what we're talking about here in this text. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before or besides me. John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, wrote, it is not necessary to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars to break this law. We break it whenever we give to something or someone other than God himself the first place in our thoughts or our affections. It may be some engrossing sport, and that's pretty evident today in our society, an absorbing hobby or selfish ambition, or maybe someone whom we idolize. I think this is something we definitely see today in this society. I know that uh, there was once, uh, in one of my previous sermons, I talked about how amazed I was at a documentary that was showing uh, young people falling and crying over the Beatles. Uh, my wife and I have recently <laughs> discovered that some people treat Taylor Swift in the same fashion, and you'll see social media posts saying, I've cried three times today just going to see, social, going to see Taylor Swift. Perhaps that's an idol. We may worship a god of gold and silver in the form of safe investments and a healthy bank balance or a god of wood and stone in the form of property and possessions. Sin is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. What someone wrote of the Englishman is true of every, every man. He is a self-made man who worships his creator. He worships self. Again, the first commandment, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before or beside me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above. Again, citing James Montgomery Boyce's work, he says the second commandment deals with the nature of worship, forbidding us to worship even the true God unworthily. He says, you know, we have these inadequate ideas of God which we prove by our irritation with God when he refuses to conform to our misunderstanding of him. And we see him as small when he declines to do precisely what it is that we want him to do on some specific occasion. When we worship him unworthily, we go through the forms of worship without engaging our hearts or minds in our devotion. That has been my prayer today. I prayed in our, in our prayer group this morning, and I, I prayed, I think I prayed before, before we started, and I pray now that our hearts, when we sit here together, when we sing and worship, when we preach, when we pray together, that our hearts will be aimed toward him. We often go to church and our minds are somewhere else. We sometimes pray, but it is only our heads that bow down and not our hearts. The third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless 
who takes his name in vain. It sounds like he takes it pretty seriously. <laughs> I think we see the Lord's name being thrown around quite often these days, used as a, swore, a swear word. I think even, even the exclamation that may seem so innocent as, oh my God, we don't see that as taking the Lord's name in vain. There was a Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson. He said, we take God's name in vain when we speak slightly and irreverently of him. When we profess God's name but do not live answerably to it. When we use God's name in idle discourse. When we worship him with our lips but not with our hearts. When we pray to him but do not believe in him. I pray that he is real to you because he is. I often think sometimes how easy it is to distance ourselves from him because we don't feel his physical presence. He is real. When we pray to him, we must believe in him. We take his name in vain when we don't. Continuing on with Thomas Watson's list, when in any way we profane and abuse this, his word, when we swear by his name, when we prefix his name to any wicked action, when we use our tongues any way to the dishonor of God's name, when we make rash and unlawful vows, when we speak evil of God, and when we falsify our promise. Thomas Watson says those are the various ways that we take our Lord's name in vain. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The question that is raised is, do we really observe the whole? There's, there's debate, right? There's debate over what, what is the Sabbath day, right? There's this debate of whether it's Saturday or Sunday, but ultimately when it comes down to it, the whole of that day, whether it be Saturday or Sunday, whatever it is that that you want to subscribe to or believe, do we really observe it at whole? Do we really keep it holy? Do we use the whole of that day for worship? Or do we use the whole of the day for Christian service? Could you imagine if we woke up, showed up here, and didn't leave until nightfall? Who among us truly keeps the Sabbath or the Lord's day holy? the fifth commandment. As we transition here, you're going to see that there's, there's going to be a transition from the fourth to the fifth commandment. If you remember when Christ was asked what are the greatest of the two commandments, he said the two commandments are summarized in this way. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your body, and your soul. And the second one, he said, is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. As you can see from the summary of, of, the, of the first four uh, commandments that I just read, those are all geared towards honoring our Lord and Savior. We are now going to transition into the, the second tablet of the commandments where we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the first commandment of that, which is the fifth commandment, is honor your father and your mother. 
Ultimately, this has to do with the place of authority because our parents are the first human authority that God sets over us. Unfortunately, we, we rebel against authority. And that rebellion typically <laughs> begins at home. I, I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but if you're a parent, <laughs> we have a two-year-old. This is rarely recognized, right? <laughs> you see your children rebelling against things that you tell them not to do. At times, it seems that the home is where we are particularly rude, unmannerly, disobedient, and ungrateful. So again, with that fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. The sixth, you shall not murder. I hope you all would remember what Jesus said in the book of Matthew. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Murder is not just the, the physical act. But it can also be shown through anger. The next commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This is probably a commandment that st stands at the forefront of our minds. Often when, we act, when we're thinking about the Ten Commandments, it may be one that, that stands out primarily because of the sexual desires and the sexual sins, not only of our own, but of the culture and of the world we see around us. Jesus commented on this commandment also. Just as he talked about murder, he said, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. That's not just limited to men. John Stott wrote, it includes flirting, experimenting, and solitary sexual experience. It also includes all sexual perversions. For although men and women are not responsible for a perverted instinct, they are for its indulgence. It includes selfish demands within wedlock and many, if not all, divorces. It includes the deliberate reading of pornographic literature and giving in to impure fantasies. The commandment embraces every abuse of a sacred and beautiful gift of God positive side of this command is chastity before marriage and faithfulness afterwards. We're getting close to the end. Three more. You shall not steal. What is the real reason for this commandment? We are told in James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Who are we to go against what God has decided as far as who's, who's going to receive a gift? You shall not steal. We do this in many ways. Again, James Montgomery Boyce, he said we steal from an employer when we do not give him the best work of which we are capable of, when we waste time or leave work early. 
we steal from our customers, if we charge too much for our products or services, if we knowingly sell what is inferior. We steal from others when we borrow from them, but do not return what we have borrowed on time, if at all. We steal from ourselves when we squander our talents or our time. We steal from God directly when we neglect to give him the worship, honor, thanksgiving, and obedience he deserves. There can be a positive that results from this, from you shall not steal. If you remember in Ephesians, Paul says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. According to Paul, the Eighth Commandment will remain unfulfilled until the offender begins to help others who are in need. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This, of course, is a warning against perjury. But it's far more than that. It condemns all slander, idle talk, gossip, unkind rumors, jokes at another person's expense, lies, deliberate exaggerations or distortions of the truth. It even concerns listening to such unkind things uncritically. And it also concerns our failures to rise and defend those who we know are being verbally abused in any way. Last but not least, the one that Paul writes of extensively here in this section of our text, you shall not covet. The Tenth Commandment goes in greater detail. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The interesting thing about the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, is that it deals explicitly with the inward part of us. It's not merely the outward nature of the law. It's an internal attitude that may or may not express itself in an outwardly act. Covetousness is a root sin. Again, going back to Watson, he says that when it is exercised fully, it causes a breach of each of the other commandments. Again, one more time with James Montgomery Boyce. He says, sin is always much worse than we can imagine. In fact, the more we read and understand the law, the greater our sin will seem to be. And that will continue until, like Paul himself, we cry out, who will rescue me from this body of death? And we are able to answer God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And at the end of that life, at the end of this, at the end of that is life. Because only those of us who are dead in our trespasses and sins seek a Savior. Only those who know that we are spiritually sick seek the great physician. Again, that was James Montgomery Boyce. I don't want to take away anything from his quotes. So why is it good to diagnose or know our sin? As James Montgomery Boyce said there at the end, it brings us to our knees. 
when we diagnose our sin, it brings us to our knees. It brings us to our knees in surrender because we know we cannot uphold the law and it brings us to our knees in worship because we know that he provided a way and that way is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sin is opportunistic. It is opportunistic. As Paul says twice in this section of text, he says it seizes an opportunity through the commandment. Sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment. So again, going back to the the deeds, three things that sin does through the commandment. Sin develops or increases through the commandment, so it develops. Sin deceives through the commandment, and sin destroys or kills through the commandment. It develops. How does sin develop through the commandment? In our, in our reading, it says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced to me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. It is not that sin does not or did not exist with Paul, but when he became consciously aware of it, when he became consciously of the, of the law, he started to violate it. We tend to do this. We tend to violate it more often or become more conscious of our violation of it. As it is a diagnostic, we start to look at our lives from that prism and we start to see how we cannot hold up to the good and holy law of God. Again, sin develops through the commandment. I talked a little bit ago about our, our son. <laughs> our son, for his birthday, got a little uh, four-wheeler um, from one of his grandparents. And it's, it's one where he pushes with his legs. It's not, he's two, so it's not like, boom, you know. But it does have the little sounds. It's got that and a, and a, a horn and different things. But anyways, we have an older dog. She's not doing so great. And uh, so her hind legs aren't working very well, so she wipes out quite frequently. Anyways, our son thought it would be a wise idea to crash his four-wheeler into the feeble dog. So what happens to the feeble dog? Well, the feeble dog wipes out, right? Makes a loud bang, and his dad says, no, we don't do that, son. We don't run our four-wheeler into the feeble dog. So our son has this look. He puts his head down, and he looks at you from the top, through the top of his eyes. And then he proceeds to back into the dog in his four-wheeler. He's two. He knows what the law was. I just gave him the law. He disobeyed the law. When you're aware of it, we tend to violate it more often, and we also become aware that we do violate it more often. Apart from the law, we believe ourselves to be alive. This is what something else Paul says in our text, but when But when we come face to face with the God's holy, righteous, and good law, his holy standard, we recognize that sin grips our life. Again, in verse 9, I believe it is. Yeah, verse 9 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The awareness of the sin that comes alive develops and grows, and it puts the old self to death. 
The reason why it puts the old self to death is because now we're aware. We are consciously aware. We cannot forget what we know now. The old self dies because we are now conscious of our sin. Sin deceives through the commandment. The very commandment that promised life to be death, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 10. Before knowing Christ, Paul believed that his self-righteous, legalistic lifestyle could save him. And we know this because it's evidenced in 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 Philippians when Paul's speaking of himself, when he's talking about how he was going to be saved in his flesh, he says of his, whole, his old self, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul thought pretty highly of himself, didn't he? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. All of Paul's self-righteous works contributing right, contributed right up to his zeal that led to the persecution of the church. And it was only leading to death. So how else does sin deceive us through the commandment? I know this seems like a very Debbie Downer uh, (laughs) uh, sermon, and it somewhat is, but there's a reason for that. We have to know, (laughs) we have to know what sin does with the law. It's important to see the law as what it is, the holy and righteous standard of God. But sin takes it and it twists it, it contorts it. It uses it as a weapon. And this is the, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones listed nine ways that it commonly deceives us. It gets us to misuse the law. It convinces us that as long as we have not sinned outwardly and visibly, we are all right, forgetting that with God the thoughts and intentions of the heart are all important. Sometimes sin changes its tactics and tells us that everything is hopeless and we might as well just keep on sinning. Sin tells us that it does not matter whether or not we are holy. It says, why don't you keep on sinning so that grace may abound? We've heard that. Sin deceives us by making us angry at the law, feeling that God is against us if he prohibits anything. If he were for us, we think, he would let us do what we want to do and be happy. Sin gets us to believe that the law is unreasonable, impossible, and unjust. Sin makes us think very highly of ourselves. It makes us ask why we should be bound by any law. Why shouldn't we become what Friedrich Nietzsche called a superman or a superwoman and be a law unto ourselves? Sin tells us that the law is oppressive, keeping us from developing the wonderful gifts and talents we have within us, all of which would emerge if only we did not have to be held back by God's command. Sin makes righteous look drab and unattractive. Last one, sin causes us to discount the consequences of willful disobedience. It whispers what Satan said to Eve. You will not surely die. 
It says that the most preposterous idea in the whole world is hell, forgetting that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of hell more often than anyone else in the Bible. Nine ways in which sin deceives us. And last, sin destroys. Sin destroys through the commandment. Sin uses these types of deceptions that we just talked about to increase sin, to destroy, to kill. So we go back to how Paul started this section of text. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? His answer, by no means. His answer at the end in verse 12, he says, the law is ho- so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That the argument that he just laid out. For what shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known. For I would not have known what it was to come. I could not diagnose what my sin was. Or what my sin is. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It produced more. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Yeah, in his self, in his self, in his flesh he was. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And then he says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous is good. In verse 13, this is where I said I'm going to dabble in this a little bit. It's not my verse, technically. It's supposed to be next week. but I'm gonna... So he, fir- he follows up, and he kind of concludes his thought here. He said, did that which is good, meaning the law, then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Why beyond measure? I'll repeat what I said earlier. It has to bring us to our knees. The law is the diagnostic tool of our disease. Our disease of sin. Sin weaponizes the law, and it wields it to develop itself deceive and destroy. Again, those three Ds. Through the law, sin develops itself, deceives, and destroys. The the law cannot save us. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Nate, you can come up. Again, like I said, it's a... (laughs) seems like a Debbie Debbie Downer sermon. I think the focus obviously is primarily the law. But not not just the law, how sin relates to it. And I think the best way to to end is to look at Romans, go back in Romans a little bit. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, all of that I just went through today was just to show how sinful we are. If you didn't figure it out, that was my point. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Whose blood? Christ's. Not ours. We've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from him, by him, excuse me, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus Christ is alive. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He gives us an opportunity to see, <laughs> to open our eyes to what we are incapable of that only he can achieve. That's the point. The point of this passage. It is not the good and holy law that the Lord has given us that shows us if we could perfectly uphold to it, life would be perfect. As God said in creation, it would be good. It would be very good. Only Jesus could do it. And when we are with him, and we will be with him, it will be good, very good. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you give us your son so that we, we don't have to be overwhelmed by the sin that takes your law and just distorts it and beats us with it. That we can come to you, that we can lean on you, that we know that you will guide us that you are the only answer to everything. Literally everything, Lord. You are the only answer. For broken marriages, you are the answer. For broken relationships between children and their parents, you are the answer. For illness, for death, you are the answer. Lord God, let us rightly worship you. Let us come to you. Let us recognize who you are. Open our eyes to who you are. And worship you in a way that honors you, glorifies you, and is in the way that you require us to worship you. Let us seek holiness and recognize it is not a bad thing to want to seek that to seek the righteousness of the law, to seek the holiness, but understand too that we will always fall short without you. Lord God, let us cling to you. 
Let us love you. Let us worship you. And Lord God, I just ask that with every person in this room, Lord God, that you will touch their hearts. You will touch their minds, their bodies, their souls. And they will know you. They will develop an intimate relationship with you. I ask it in your son's holy name. In Jesus Christ's holy name, I pray.